2: From KQED in San Francisco, this is Forum. I'm Nina Kim. Judging is not for the faint of heart, writes Judge LaDoris Cordell in her new memoir, Her Honor. Over two decades as the first black female jurist to sit on a superior court in Northern California, Cordell oversaw thousands of civil and criminal cases, many of which laid bare for her the racial biases and other structural flaws that infect the legal system. We'll talk about her experiences on the bench and her ideas for changing how justice is administered in California and the U.S. Join us. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. In her new memoir, Judge Ladoris Hazard Cordell gives a rare look inside the mind and life of a judge, what drives what happens in a courtroom, as well as her thoughts on how to fix the flaws in our legal system. Judge Cordell was the first black woman to sit on a superior court in Northern California. Her memoir is titled Her Honor, My Life on the Bench, What Works, What's Broken, and How to Change It. Welcome to Forum, Judge Cordell. Thank you so much, Mina. I'm delighted to talk to you. Well, we're delighted to have you. And your book has this very sweet origin story, which I'd love to talk to you about first. It owes a lot to letters that you wrote your mother when you wanted to share the experiences and emotions you had on the job. Can you tell us about those letters? Sure. Uh, During the last eight years that I was on the bench,
0: every Friday I wrote letters to my parents on the East Coast and my parents were very interested in what I was doing uh, in the court. So in these letters, I wrote about everything that happened that week and about all the cases I presided over, what I did, and also how I felt about them. And these weren't emails. So these were letters, real letters. I didn't make copies of them and, and just wrote to them. So when I retired, I went back East for a visit and my mother pulls this box out of the closet. My mother was a very organized person. Mm -hmm. And she said to me, what do you want me to do with all these letters? And I looked and I said, oh my God, she had saved all of the letters. So I boxed them up and sent them back here to California. And it took me a few years, two or three years to actually sit down and decide I wanted to read them. And I was stunned by what I read and stunned because I I really... It really hit me how many cases I had presided over Mm. and the facts of these cases all were coming back to me. And but for those letters, I really couldn't have written this book. So I really owe it to them. And my only regret is they're not here um, Mm. any longer. um, So to to really enjoy the book, and I think they would have gotten a kick out of it, which is the reason why I dedicated this book to their memory.
2: Yeah, well, you did preside over a, a lot of cases, as you say. Governor Jerry Brown appointed you to the municipal court in 1982, making you the the first black female judge in Northern California, and then later in 88 appointed to the superior court. You've described that time as being a quote oddity in the courtroom. What was that like for you, being the first black female jurist? Right. What
0: one uh, uh, clarification? I was not appointed to the Superior Court in 1988. Actually, I ran for a seat, an open seat on the court. Uh,
2: Yes, yes,
0: thank Uh, you. So to your question, being the the first uh, black woman to sit on the bench in Northern California, uh, it was strange for me and I'm sure strange for lawyers and litigants in the courtroom um, because people are coming in the courts are used to at that point seeing judges that looked like white males for the most part, there were very few women at the time when I started in, and as I said, no no black women on the bench at all. And so I got, the there was a lot of pressure. I just got the sense that some people were holding their breaths, waiting for me to mess up. Uh, there were members of communities of color were holding their breath saying, please don't mess up, because if you do, then there probably will be a long stretch before someone else who looks like you can be on the bench. So there was the pressures. and particularly when litigants come in and in criminal cases who are black and brown i I could just see in their body language and their faces that oh you know here's someone that there's going to give me a break uh, because you know she looks like me and the answer of course is no uh, i'm not going to give you a break because we look alike but it certainly gave me a, a perspective meaning coming from my background my parents were working class folks Uh, having experienced racial discrimination, sex discrimination. Um, uh, So any judge, any trial judge who sits on a court comes with their own baggage and their own experiences, their life experiences. And that really informs how we look at people and the kinds of decisions we make on the bench.
2: You've also said that you had some habits that you had to unlearn and some other habits that you developed. Um, But one of the things that you had mentioned was that uh, your parents were wrong, that interrupting is very good. (laughs) What did you mean by that?
0: So uh, my parents uh, raised us. I'm the middle of three. There are three sisters. I'm the middle And uh, my parents would just, you know, raise us to be polite. You don't interrupt people. You wait. You listen to what people have to say. And if you disagree, you do it in a civil manner. And I found that that's not really good for a trial judge. Uh, And I learned it the hard way because I learned to be polite. And I'd hear lawyers get up. And if you don't stop a lawyer, they'll go on and on and on and on and start repeating and repeating. And at some point it occurred to me, no, mm, I think I'm going to have to interrupt here. And I would try to do it nicely um, and say, a counsel, I've heard enough, or counsel, you've already said that three times, will you please stop talking and you can sit down? And, and the response, of course, because I'm sitting in the bench of the black robe was, oh, certainly, Your Honor, sorry, Your
2: Honor. I'm like, oh, wow. So interrupting, if you're a trial judge, it, it's a good thing. Um- I want to talk to you about something you write about that is often the experience that a lot of us have uh, when we are interacting with the courts, which is about jury duty and about your interactions with people who are there potentially to serve on a jury. You wrote that jury duty is like the plague. No one wants it, which is kind of funny if you think about um, the period that we're in right now. But talk about the lengths that some people would go to to avoid service and what your reaction was to that. I have a chapter in the book called, Thank You for Your
0: Service, and it is about juries. And part of that is about jury duty. I I firmly believe in juries. I believe in the jury system and it's what keeps our legal system honest. And to make it work, we'd use jurors who are everyday folks and we call upon them to perform a civic duty. Sometimes to sit, maybe just for a day, sometimes for weeks, sometimes for months, in order to bring justice in whatever case they're presiding over. Um, And it has become the case that, and believe me, I get phone calls still. People will call me, I just got my notice for jury duty. How can I get out of it? Um, And people don't wanna do it. And uh, one of the reasons, is that there's a lot of sitting and waiting around and jurors are never really told, why am I sitting here in this jury room all day or day number two and not being told? And there are things going on in the courtroom that jurors just don't know about. And then of course, there's the process of jury selection and being grilled and asked questions and maybe having to fill out a questionnaire. And this takes people away from work takes them away from families, takes them away from whatever it is they usually do during the day. Uh, So people are not crazy about doing it and they don't feel really good about it. And and people will do all kinds of things to get out of jury duty. So I write about that in the book where people will fill out these juror questionnaires sometimes and be rude, be obscene and um, call people names Uh, People will fake it and make up things about, well, I really can't sit long because I can't sit, whatever. So the judges, we have to kind of weed through all of that. And it's really sad because it's really a wonderful opportunity to have input in our legal system. I never got a chance to sit on a jury, and I still hope that I can. There is no age limit on sitting as as a juror. Um, And the other part of jury service that I think really is just not recognized is the compensation. Mm -hmm. Uh, Jurors get paid in most states. There are some states that don't pay at all. Uh, In California, a juror gets $15 a day, but only starting on the second day. $15. If you sit as a juror in federal court, you can get $50 a day. All of that, I think, is not... um, A good message to give to to jurors if we really believe that juries matter. So in my book, I, I give a recommendation about what should be done in, I think, increasing the pay for people who sit and serve as jurors.
2: Yes, your book is both a memoir, but also you're providing what you call fixes to some of the things that you see as problems in terms of min- administering justice in this state and in this country. And one of them, of course, is what you think can be done to get people more invested in jury service and why it is so important. Can you talk about the dual purposes that uh, you have with this this memoir, Her Honor? Uh, and I
0: appreciate your, your your discussing this because I wrote this book for really three three reasons, and I call them the three E's: to educate people about the legal system, to entertain, because this is not a dull textbook. I I put stories in here about cases that affected impact, impacted my life, uh, some that made me laugh, some made me shudder, some made me cry. Um, So I did it to educate, to entertain, and the third E is to energize. I want to energize everyone who reads this book, judges, lawyers, non-legal people, um, anyone uh, who cares about our legal system to, to think about the kinds of things that need to be fixed and perhaps become energized about some of the fixes that I propose. So I combine, I call it a primer. Because it is a primer about our legal system and part memoir, because I inform this these this primer with my own experiences, and I kind of put it together and call it a primoir. It's kind of a new genre. Um, so I hope that people will um, understand how hard it is to be a trial court judge. And and by that, you know, I mean this: that um, if you look at the U.S. Supreme Court, there are nine justices, and they hear about eighty new cases a year. If we look at trial state trial court judges, of, there are about twenty-seven thousand in this country, and that's really not a lot when you consider there's almost four hundred million people in this country. But these twenty-seven thousand people in black robes impact just about everybody's lives because we're talking everything from traffic tickets to evictions, to adoptions, to name changes, to divorces, child custody, child support, probate, people fighting over wills, criminal cases, civil cases. It's very rare for our lives not to be impacted by trial court judges. And the other thing I want people to understand about the pressures on trial court judges, the the trial court judges, I think, are the, the people's court. We are the first courts that people come into. Above us are appellate courts, and most all states have appellate courts, and the top appellate courts are the Supreme Courts. California has a Supreme Court, for example. Now, the appellate courts, when they get a case, they are reviewing decisions made by trial court judges. That's all they do. And with appellate courts, they can sit back, they can take 60 days or six months to decide a case. Trial court judges, we get maybe six minutes and sometimes 60 seconds to decide a case.
2: A lot of power accrues to a trial court judge, and there are a lot of pressures. We'll hear more about them after the break. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim.
1: This is Barbara Leslie, president of the Oakland Port Commission. Oakland International Airport, OAK, is proud to bring you this podcast of KQED's Forum. When you're choosing your next adventure, the smart and convenient choice is to fly the East Bay Way—
3: So I can kill time in here by streaming my favorite... Ha! Found ya. How? you left to find my tablet on. Get wall-to-wall Wi-Fi on the Xfinity 10G network. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary.
2: This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking about California's judicial and legal system and what needs to be fixed with Judge Lodoris Cordell, a retired California Superior Court judge. Her new book is Her Honor, about her life on the bench. What are your thoughts or questions for Judge LaDoris Cordell? Have you appeared in court or served on a jury in California? Do you have observations about the legal system that you'd like to share? You can call us at 866-733-6786. Again, 866-733-6786. You can also get in touch on Twitter or Facebook at KQED Forum. You can email us, forum at kqed.org. Judge Cordell, uh, you do really grapple in the book with the power that trial court judges have while also balancing the kinds of pressures and resources or lack thereof. You also just talk about how much your decisions, how, how you take a very careful, um, you take the responsibility of decision-making very seriously. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about that And perhaps in the context of a case that you write about involving a person named Jessica T., a juvenile named Jessica T., who was charged with murder and had no right to a jury trial. Um, Jessica T. was a 15-year-old who
0: was tried in juvenile court for murder. Um, She did not commit a murder. She didn't know anything about a murder. She didn't know that a murder was going to be committed. Yet she was charged with murder under the felony murder rule, which says that if you participate in a felony that is connected in some manner to a murder, then you are as guilty as the person who actually committed the murder. Um, So more recently, California, as some other states have done, has abolished the felony murder rule. Uh, but at the time, that was the case, and this was tried in juvenile court. So, in our juvenile courts, they were set up specifically to address the fact that juveniles are not adults; they are not as mature thinking, and for that reason, the really the emphasis is on um, rehabilitation, and the theory being that all juveniles are worth saving; they're not shouldn't just be locked away forever. Um, so, I write in a book about juvenile courts, about their origins, and then specifically about this case, because in juvenile court, uh, there are no juries. The judge does everything. Um, And um, it was a very difficult case uh, because uh, the felony murder rule held her, and I basically found her guilty of murder. Um, And it wasn't something that I delighted in doing, but at the time that was the law. And any judge who um, presides takes an oath and the oath is to uphold all of the laws. And that means even the laws that we don't like. Uh, So as a result of that case, and and I got a lot of uh, pushback um, on that case after I found her guilty, not because of the conviction, but because of my efforts to try to decide what to do with her after she had been found, after I'd found her guilty of murder. And the pushback really was from media, was from prosecutors, because I ended up um, placing her at a juvenile, a ranch for juveniles where she would be incarcerated for a year. And of course the pushback was, well, you know, Judge Cordell gave a murderer a year. Well, that's not what I did. And she in fact, wasn't a murderer, but I considered the things that judges are supposed to consider, the victim, the victim's family, and also the defendant, her upbringing, um, the challenges she had had, and I determined that that was the best thing to do. The, the the hardest thing about judging really is when we have, and we do have the ability to do this, is using our discretion, deciding what we believe is right. And we never know in the end if we did the right thing, but uh, if we followed the law and then... Um, use common sense, and also have some compassion. That doesn't mean we're soft on everybody, but it means to that it's important that we balance all of these things.
2: You write that you see as some potential fixes as abolishing the felony murder rule and, the man, and also to mandate jury trials in felony prosecution of juveniles. Do you want to talk a little bit about what you see that doing in terms of justice for juveniles? Sure. Um, I... So let me give you the example.
0: If you uh, take an 18-year-old and an 18-year-old is convicted uh, or charged with a terrible crime, a felony, and that 18-year-old, because he or she is 18, is an adult and has a right under the Sixth Amendment to a jury trial. Now, take a 16-year-old who is tried in juvenile court for the same crime that 16-year-old is not allowed a jury trial because the US Supreme Court has said, even though the Sixth Amendment guarantees a jury trial for anyone uh, charged with crimes, it doesn't apply to juveniles. Um, And I think that's a problem. And I think that when the state uh, decides to charge a juvenile and try a juvenile in juvenile court for a felony, that that juvenile should have the right guaranteed to that 18 year old uh, to a jury trial. The U.S. Supreme Court, I think, is wrong on this issue. And I, in the book, right, I think they're really engaged in magical thinking when they came to their decision that juveniles should not have the right to jury trials. Now, there are some states that allow jury trials for juveniles in juvenile court. And I would like to see that happen uh, throughout the country. And I would really like to see the U.S. Supreme Court re-examine its decision. Uh, you mentioned the other about the felony murder rule. Um, I just I just believe it should be abolished. We are the only country in the world that utilizes this doctrine. And there are some states that, in fact, do not follow it or allow it. And one of them is California.
2: We're talking with retired California Superior Court Judge Ladoris Cordell, and you, our listeners, are with us. Let me go to some calls. I'll go to Paulo in San Francisco. Hi, Paulo.
4: Hi there. Um, I'm calling from SF, and I am a 22-year-old that missed my jury duty summons, and I'm so sorry. Um, but I was wondering, kind of like, because I've heard from friends as well, have missed jury duty summons that are also uh gen z individuals, millennials and i was kind of just wondering like um do when when you do miss your jury duty summons and also i was also wondering like if this is kind of like this like kind of like an epidemic with like younger people that like either just don't do jury duty or haven't heard of it as much i was like raised um in palo alto and we didn't hear about it as much in school i think mm. although i did have teachers that would miss uh you know work days for jury duty and they would do it with great pride and they like told us about it like i'm doing it so you should do it too kind of thing sorry i'm at work so i'm kind of like no
2: no worries paulo you. thanks let, let me see what judge Ladoris doris cordell has to say about that
0: well, Paulo, you you might be in a little bit of trouble here because when people don't show up and have not been excused for, from jury duty, what usually happens is a summons gets issue, issued, and you will get a summons, maybe in the mail or maybe one served on you that says uh, you need to go to court. If not, you know there could be other consequences, such as someone coming out and saying. Um, I need to take you to court, or I might need to arrest you. So um, I think everyone should take jury duty very seriously. Uh, And those people who legitimately can't serve for various reasons, medical reasons, for example, or uh, when you go to court and you actually know the people involved in the case, that's a reason for a judge to say, okay, you don't have to serve as a juror. Um, But but Powell, you raise a, a really important issue is that Uh, particularly younger people um, perhaps are not aware of the importance of juries and of serving on a jury and how great as really a civic responsibility it is. And people who have served on juries have told me, because I've presided over a good number of jury trials, they loved it. They loved being a part of the system uh, from the inside and actually being the deciders about what the facts are and then applying the law. Uh, it's a wonderful experience. And I just hope that our high schools, our community colleges, our colleges and universities start really focusing on this because the jury duty really matters.
2: Well, this is their tweets. As one of the many within, quote, invisible but very real disability, let me just say that I'll be happy to serve once jury service incorporates more reasonable disability accommodations. Until then, my doctor and I regrettably say no. Are there enough disability accommodations? So that's a very good point. And accommodations vary
0: from jurisdiction to jurisdiction. So if there are people, for example, who are hearing impaired um, and need special devices so that they can listen to and observe uh, people in court, uh, courts, I believe, under the American Disabilities Act are required to provide those kinds of things. But there are others who do have uh, physical disabilities who are just unable to sit for long periods of time. And that's what jury duty really requires, uh, paying attention and sitting while uh, sometimes, unfortunately, lawyers and judges drone on and on. But hopefully, um, you know, the the experience most people have is that it's just a really, really wonderful experience.
2: Well, Michael tweets, my impression was that jury trials were a lot more frequent during the three strikes era, at least from the number of jury duty notices I got back then. Was that valid? I I don't think so.
0: Um, It's really interesting that um, 98% of all criminal cases in the United States and in federal courts now and state courts, 98% do not go to trial. So we're only talking about 2%. That doesn't mean there aren't a lot of criminal cases, particularly when Three Strikes was in its heyday, which was the late 1990s and early 2000s. Uh, so a lot of cases were being brought, but uh, there were a lot of defendants who they say when they see jurors coming in the courtroom, they suddenly decide, oh, no, 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 I'll, I'll take a plea and I will, I'll plead out. Um, But there are also uh, many, many other cases that account for this 98% that settle. That's all due to plea bargaining. Um, I address plea bargaining in uh, her honor. And uh, Mina, if you want to talk about that a little, I'm glad to because I I do have a, a big problem with it. Sure. Go right ahead. Sure. So plea bargaining is really a deal. It's an agreement, usually entered into between a prosecutor and a defendant. We're talking criminal cases here, where the prosecutor says, if you plead to count one, I'll dismiss counts two and three, and therefore, if you go to trial, you're going to face all four counts. But here, it's a sure thing, and then your sentence won't be as lengthy if you're convicted of all four. And and there there are benefits to plea bargaining. Certainly, uh, defendants who accept these deals don't. Um, they, it removes the uncertainty of a trial verdict. And then for the court, it just frees up the courtroom. And for prosecutors, it's a powerful negotiating tool that allows them to dismiss some charges. Um, but plea bargaining, I think, has really gotten out of control. And I, I'm going to quote from Justice Anthony Kennedy. And he said this about plea bargaining in a decision. And I'm quoting horse trading uh, between prosecutor and defense counsel determines who goes to jail and for how long. That is what plea bargaining is. It is not some adjunct to the criminal justice system. It is the criminal justice system. Hmm. Plea bargaining really is it. That's what criminal the criminal legal system is all about. Um, and there are serious downsides to it. Defendants who accept these pleas don't get their day in court. The defendants who reject plea bargains and instead opt to the trial, frequently they face harsh punishment from judges that are angry that they refuse the offers to plead guilty, the Sixth Amendment guarantee of a right to trial notwithstanding. Some people call that the trial penalty. And then there's the innocence dilemma. There are people who plead guilty because the Supreme Court says this is fine, you can do this. Um, And it's called an Alford plea, A-L-F-O-R-D, named a case after a case. Uh, The man's name was Henry Alford. And Mr. Alford pled guilty to second degree murder, um, albeit he said, well, you know, I'm only doing it because if I go to trial, I may be facing the death penalty. I'm not pleading guilty because I committed the murder. And the Supreme Court said that's fine, that there was in that case overwhelming evidence of Mr. Alford's guilt. But the court went on to say that um, you can use the Alfred plea uh, by basically if you just don't want to take the risk of going to trial. So there are many, many cases where defendants plead and they say, I'm innocent. I didn't do it, but I don't want to take the risk of going to trial. And I had many a person, many a defendant, say that in my court. Um, And the problem is that you end up with innocent people pleading guilty and serving time in our prisons and one study estimates that there may be one two percent of um, people who are serving time in prisons who are in fact innocent and that's tens of thousands of people. Uh, so I think the Supreme Court should um, reevaluate the, the Alfred plea. Uh, it's used in every state with the exceptions of Indiana, Michigan and New Jersey and plays a major role in plea bargains so, Um, The question is, do we want to deal with the innocent defendant dilemma? And I think it's very important that we do. And I hope people will read the book because in it, I point out a study that was done by two professors where they took some students at a college and put them in the innocent defendant dilemma situation where they were accused of cheating and told that if, and they, they hadn't in fact cheated but told that if they would just admit to the cheating, they could get off lightly. But if they didn't, they'd have to go before a board. And that board found 90% of the people who came, students who came before it to have, to be guilty. And surprisingly, 56% of innocent students decided to admit that they cheated.
2: Did plea bargains drive you from the bench or did it play a role in making you want to leave?
0: Ah. <sighs> You know, I got to a point in my career on the bench, and, and don't get me wrong, I loved it. I mean, yes. I had some bad days, but I, I, I loved it. It was really my passion. Um, but it got to a point where one case in particular, and I write about it in, um, you know, toward the end of the book, where I had to, I believed I had to impose a sentence on uh, a man, an African-American man, of 55 years to life. And I didn't believe he deserved it. I believed he deserved to be punished, but not for that long a period of time. And after I imposed that sentence and I write about it quite graphically in the book about the toll it took on me, let alone the toll it certainly took on him, that I decided that I just couldn't do it anymore. Uh, When you wear the robe, you have to uphold all the laws. And um, I decided I just couldn't keep doing that. And at the time, mean, you know, mean, understand that in Santa Clara County, um, it was the three strikes was just uh, really prosecutors were just going wild with it. It was just there were so many defendants of color, black and brown, coming into courts charged with strikes, either two strikes or three strikes. And so many of them were coming into my court. Um, and I, I didn't think the street i did not believe in the three strikes law, um, meaning it's a mandatory minimum sentencing scheme where every defendant is painted with the same brush. Uh, you don't look at the individual. That's just, nope, this is it. And it's just like using a computer, punching in the numbers and off the people go. Uh, fortunately, California voters stepped up and um, revised the three strikes law. I mean, we still have it, but it's not as draconian as it originally was. Uh, Meaning that people charged with serious, non-serious and non-violent crimes could also be, those people could be uh, charged with three strikes. And in fact, uh, back in the day, um, the great majority of people serving time in California prisons, their third strikes were for non-serious, non-violent crimes such as drug possession and thefts.
2: Well, uh, we have some comments coming in from listeners before the break that I'll read. Craig agrees with you. I think people should be paid more for the time spent answering a call for jury duty. The self-employed suffer greatly when having to spend all that time from the selection of jurors to the completion of a trial wendy writes i have been on a jury four times and each time was a great experience i got to meet people i may not have met in other areas of life the judges were amazing and i had great respect for them if you're a reader which i am the dead time was reading time if you're a writer which i am there was endless intrigue in the cases and the people i'd suggest that the best part of a civic education is being on a jury. We'll have more with Judge LaDoris Cordell after the break. Stay with us, you're listening to Forum.
1: This is Barbara Leslie, president of the Oakland Port Commission. Oakland International Airport, OAK, is proud to bring you this podcast of KQED's Forum. When you're choosing your next adventure, the smart and convenient choice is to fly the East Bay Way
3: So, I can kill time in here by streaming my favorite- Ha! Found ya. How? you left to find my tablet on. Get wall-to-wall Wi-Fi on the Xfinity 10G network. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary.
2: Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking with retired California Superior Court Judge Ladoris Cordell. She's written a new book, Her Honor, My Life on the Bench, What Works, What's Broken, and How to Change It. And you, our listeners, can join the conversation, as always, by emailing us, forum at kqed.org, posting thoughts on Twitter or Facebook at kqedforum, calling us, 866-733-6786. Judge Cordell, one of the things that you say also prompted you to write this book is the 2016 campaign to recall Judge Aaron Persky, which succeeded in 2018. And uh, as listeners might remember, Persky became a target for recall after sentencing Brock Turner, who sexually assaulted Chanel Miller on Stanford's campus, to six months in jail. Can you talk about why you became probably Judge Persky's most vocal spokesperson, I think you even describe yourself that way, against his recall. The
0: reason Judge Persky was not his own spokesperson during the recall is that the uh, rules for judges at the time was that judges cannot speak publicly about cases that were pending in their courts. And for that reason, he had to have surrogates. And I ended up being one of those surrogates and a very vocal one. And the reason I spoke out, and I'm not going to talk about um, whether or not people agree or disagree with the sentence, because the recall, in my view, was really about uh, an attack on the independence of the judiciary. Independence is the hallmark of the judiciary. It ensures that decision-making adheres strictly to the law, free of the influence of public whim, political pressure, and money special interest groups. Um, so recall, it's a legitimate reason. It is. It, it is, can be legitimate. It's a mechanism by which voters hold accountable state court judges who engage in misconduct. And, and that's a good thing. We shouldn't have to wait for judges to complete their terms if they've engaged in malfeasance, if they've committed, uh, been convicted of a crime, uh, if they've engaged in misconduct. Um, and, and that, I, I think, is, is fine. But when recalls target judges for engaging in lawful, albeit controversial decision-making, as was the case with with Judge Persky, suddenly judges start looking over their shoulders rather than at the evidence. And I believe the consequences of these kinds of recalls are disastrous, not only for our judiciary, but for for democracy. So in the book, I, I write about the history of recalls generally. And I point out that there are two states that strictly limit judicial recalls to instances of judicial malfeasance, a failure to perform their duties of the office, or to a judge who has been convicted of a serious crime. And those two states, and I think it surprises people when I tell them, are Georgia and Montana. Um, and so significantly, recalls In those two states, recalls of judges can never be based on a judge's lawful decision, be it discretionary or mandated by the law, no matter how controversial. And so what happened in California and what is the law in California, um, that judicial recalls uh, don't have to have a reason. It's just whatever. If someone decides they don't like the judge or don't like what the judge decided, no matter if it's lawful, uh, then that judge can be recalled, uh, which is what happened to Aaron Persky. Um, So there will be people who will say, well, well, yeah, he was just a bad judge and he he made some bad decisions and there was a pattern. And my answer to that is no, there wasn't, that that was totally misinformation. This was a decent judge who'd been on the bench for 13 years and had a very good reputation until he was targeted for making a lawful decision Um, In the case of Brock Turner. So my you know, I would like to see California uh, change its constitution uh, with respect to judicial recalls and say that only judges who uh, have engaged in misconduct and malfeasance can be the subjects uh, of recall.
2: One of the things that you raise as a big problem in the judicial system is racial bias. You've talked about racism or race as sort of the elephant in the room frequently in cases and things like that. Do you think the reforms that you're... Suggesting judicial malfeasance, failure to perform duties, convicted of serious crimes, as really the grounds for recall. Can it capture that? And there was some question as to whether or not racial bias was at play in Persky's ruling. What many viewed as why you know it was very much targeted for being overly lenient with this white Stanford student. Like, do you think it would capture consistent racial bias? Well, you're, in your
0: question is a very is important information is that the legal system um, has baked into it racial bias, sexism, a lot of the isms. So I, I want to say just initially, there are good things about our legal system. The principles on which our legal system is based are the best ever. They're, they're, they're the best. So For example, the right to a jury trial, uh, the right against self-incrimination, the right to due process. These are important principles, and the, the, the problem is in the implementation. These principles were developed by white, propertied males who did not intend for these principles to apply to women, to apply to poor people, and to apply certainly to people of color. So we have a system, and if you look over the years at decisions made by the US Supreme Court, horrible decisions, Dred Scott decisions, Plessy versus Ferguson, and then you have very good decisions, Brown versus Board of Education, Griswold versus Connecticut. So there are, there's work that needs to be done to, to tease out, to get out the, all of these isms that are, are in the system. So they are, So the first is acknowledging that they exist. Um, So when we talk about and, and I mean it as well in our judiciary, every judge, I don't care who they are and including myself, has biases, and there are some of which we are very aware, and some, of course, which we're not. There are unconscious bias. And particularly for judges who wear these black robes and have so much power over people's lives, we need to do everything we can to uncover these biases and our own biases, and also to address them in our legal system. So in California, uh, and now I hope I can answer your question, in California, um, the governor, signed last year the Racial Justice Act. And the purpose of that act is to say to trial court judges, to appellate court judges, this is your job, is to when, to uncover racial bias and then to remedy it to do something about it. So for example, that act says when jury selection happens and, you're, and an objection is made that a prosecutor is, for example, using peremptory challenges, that is dismissing jurors without having to give a reason, uh, and dismissing people of color, and the defense attorney makes an objection, then it's up to the judge to then look at that, to actually hold an evidentiary hearing and determine whether or not there was racial bias when those ju- when those jurors were dismissed. Uh, prosecutors are t- supposed to give a race neutral answer. And even if they do that, it's up to the judge, not just rubber stamp that, but to, to get into it. Um, so there are things that judges should be doing that the legislature has now said to the trial court judges and to appellate judges that we should be doing to uncover this. So there's not one way Mina, to address all of this, but there are many ways through the legislature, through getting jurors who really want to do the fair and right thing, and to getting, in my view, progressive prosecutors who get it, who understand, yes, there are these kinds of issues.
2: Judge Cordell? We might have lost you there for a moment. Let me remind listeners that we're talking to Judge LaDoris Cordell, retired California Superior Court judge, and we're talking with her about her new book, Her Honor, My Life on the Bench, What Works, What's Broken, and How to Change It. Our listeners are with us, joining the conversation at 866-733-6786. You can also post your comments on Twitter or Facebook at KQED Forum. You can email us, forum at kqed.org. And also letting people wanting to let people know that uh, Judge Cordell will be speaking live at the Commonwealth Club in San Francisco tomorrow evening at 6 p.m. And Judge Cordell, do we have you back? Yeah, we're back. <laughs> Go ahead and finish your thoughts. I'm not sure where I left off, Mina. I think you were you were just talking about ways that you can hold judges accountable and so on. But actually we have a caller who has sure a question related to that. Let me go to Neil in San Francisco. Hi Neil.
4: Hello. Um I'd like to know what you think of the Canadian system of appointing and promoting judges below the appellate line anyway, uh the appellate level anyway, uh, by civil service exam no, uh or, or uh civil service board. Um you know, and taking a lot of the politics and the electoral politics out of the judiciary? Well,
0: Thanks, thank you. Neil. Thank you for the question. Um, I have a chapter in the book called Judges for Sale, and it is all about how judges are um, selected or elected. And I take issue with um, the fact that most uh, state court judges are elected. Uh, You might initially be appointed as I was, but if judges have a certain term, for example, superior court judges in California, term is six years, then if someone wants to challenge that judge, then that judge would have to stand for election. Um, I, I think that that's not the system to utilize. And in fact, I suggests that a way to do better is to utilize independent nominating commissions that have on them lay people, uh, have lawyers, maybe have retired judges, um, and their job is to vet candidates, that is lawyers who want to be on the bench, and also to um, evaluate judges whose terms are on Uh, whose terms are up in order to determine whether or not they should be permitted to continue on. So I I have a a section in the chapter, The Fix, that talks more specifically about that.
2: Yes, definitely does go into detail about our system of judicial elections. I do want to ask you just one last question related to recalls and the recall of Persky. And you, you said that you did not want to talk specifically about the sentence that was given, the six-month sentence, and you have talked about how it was consistent or lawful with what uh, the probation uh, officers recommended, but prosecutors recommended six to 14 years or six years, I believe. Why is it that you don't want to go into the specifics of the sentence itself? Do you feel like it isn't material? Well, I, I have no problem talking
0: about it, but I, with respect to the book, my concern was more about the attack on Judge Persky and the fact that what he, the sentence that he imposed, although controversial, was was a lawful one. No, I have no problem talking about the sentence. The sentence that was, uh, and I will tell you, if I had been in Judge Persky's place, yeah, I'm so curious. I would <laughs> I would, would have, you have I that would, way? I would absolutely have imposed the same sentence um, because. And and just think about it, this was a person who had no prior criminal history um, that and if you look at his the circumstances of the incident. And this is where everybody gets kind of bent out of shape. Right. But if we look at the facts and this is what judges what we're supposed to do, look at the facts. Uh, we had two people who were highly intoxicated. Um, we have uh, Brock Turner, who at uh, his sentencing was remorseful, I mean, there were, and there was a probation report that was very thorough, written by a female, a woman who interviewed everyone, the victim interviewed Brock Turner, interviewed people who knew both of them, and came with this recommendation, not just her, but the entire probation department. Um, so if uh, we balance everything out, this was not a state prison case. There is no way this was a state prison case. And I think any reasonable judge who presided over the trial, knew all the facts, read the probation report, would not have imposed a, um, a state prison sentence. And in fact, the people who promoted the recall, who pushed it said they at least wanted Brock Turner to go to prison for two years. Well, if he had gone to prison for two years, he would have served um, actually a year because you get, uh, for every day you serve in prison, you get a day credit. And so what the judge did was give him six months of incarceration. And um, so, you know, if, if the, the recall was all over the difference of another six months, um, I, I, that's to me makes little sense and was no valid reason to recall the judge.
2: We're talking to Judge LaDoris Cordell and you're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Just generally sentencing, what is the goal? Is it to be preventative?
0: Sentencing is perhaps the most difficult thing that a judge does. And it is certainly to, you know, some people say, well, it should be to send a message to everyone. That's that's really not the, the purpose of sentencing. While there may be people who, um, who feel that way, there are factors, there are rules that are Um, spelled out in the California rules of court that say exactly what it is judges are to consider and do in sentencing. So we are to look at the nature of the crime, to look at the sophistication of the perpetrator of the convicted defendant, to look at the impact on the victim, and then to look at the defendant, the background, criminal history, um, to look at all of those kinds of things in sentencing. So And to bring our common sense and, of course, to apply the law. You know, one thing I just want to go back real fast, if I could, in talking about Brock Turner, what people also don't fail to consider and understand is that Brock Turner got a sentence. He got a life sentence. The life sentence was that he is forever branded a a. Sexual predator. He has to register as a sex offender for the rest of his life, and somehow that all gets lost in the discussion. So this young man, uh, you know, expelled from 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 Stanford, he was a freshman. He has to wear that scarlet letter for the rest of his life, and I actually don't even agree with that, but that is the case. So when people say, "Oh, he got off lightly," no, he did not. Murderers murderers do not wear that scarlet letter. They serve their time, they get out. Most people don't know if that person committed that crime or not. But sex offenders, he has to register every year with the local police department for the rest of his life.
2: Well, Dave writes, there are so many innocent people in our system and there's inconsistent sentencing. I'm petrified of ever needing to go to court. Does your guess see a change in our system in the future? How will the system change to better adjudicate cases of our LGBTQ poor and black and brown folk? Good question, and there are many answers. One, pay attention
0: to who these judges are. Learn about these judges, so when they appear on the ballot, you don't do what a lot of my friends do. They call me the, the night before. Oh, there's a judge on the ballot. Who should I vote for? And, and so it's about doing the homework, uh, and that's why and read the book because I talk about how judges are are selected and where you can get information about them. So we need people with good life experiences, who are not haters, who who like people. We don't, you, uh, if you're going to be a trial court judge, you should be a people person. You should care about people and community. Um, so in, in addition, um, understand how the system works. Um, and the system is not uh, hidden. They're, they're, it's just there. People just need to to, you know, read about it and go to court, go sit in a courtroom. These are open to the public. These are yours. I tell people all the time, your tax dollars are paying the salaries of judges and everybody who works in these courts. These are yours. So it's really, you know, a call to arms, become informed, become engaged um, and pay attention. Um, go to court, watch what happens, and don't just kind of pick up on sound bites. Um, there are real opportunities to, uh, to read decisions, to read cases and, and find out. And to young people, I say, go, you know, become lawyers because after 10 years, you can then become a judge. Uh, so there are just many, many ways to, to, to impact the system. And in the aftermath of the death of George Floyd, And with the Black Lives Matter movement, people are much more aware of the fact that our legal system is broken. And one day I want to be able to say that we have a criminal justice system. Right now, I call it a criminal legal
2: system. We need to do a lot more to get the justice in it. And I believe we can. Judge LaDoris Cordell, thanks so much for talking with us. Thank you so much. And I encourage everyone to please read her honor. Her honor. That is the memoir by Judge Cordell. Thanks to our listeners for their questions and comments. Thanks to Susie Britton for producing this segment. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio
1: and the Germanicos Foundation and the Generosity Foundation. This is Barbara Leslie, President of the Oakland Port Commission.